Enjoying this cold, rainy weather? <clears throat> you know, I grew up hearing that it never rains in Southern California. Uh, it's not true, as we all know. Uh, remember last week, Todd was talking about dancing and the dance of grace? Um, well, I think the last time I preached, I talked about this principle of not one-upping somebody else's story. But I'm going to violate that this morning. Uh, Todd was talking about how he and his wife would dance this, uh, they, they would swing dance, and the whole idea was this dance of grace and this dance of generosity, and he used that to illustrate uh, uh, generosity and, and so on. Well, Don and I won a dance contest one time. Yeah. We were at a wedding, and the DJ uh, called out, if you've been married less than 10 years, leave the floor. If you've been married less than 20 years, leave the floor. If you've been married less than 30 years, leave the floor. And we were the last ones standing. <laughs> and we won. <sighs> Not because we're great dancers, but because we're great dance partners. We've been doing it for almost 36 years. Thank you. Thank you. So you cheer because we want a dance contest, but not because our marriage has lasted a long time. Well, we got a lot of work to do this morning. All right, over the last four weeks, we've been talking about how generosity is extending to others the surpassing grace, chapter 9 and verse 14 in 2 Corinthians, how how. It, generosity is extending this, this abundant grace that God has poured out on us to others. But in the Corinthian church, there was this group of troublemakers, uh, this rebellious group that questioned Paul, and they actually stopped the dance of grace in that church. Now, what we want to see this morning is, is the cycle of grace, this dance of grace, continue in terms of authority. Paul is explaining and defending his authority as an apostle. He's explaining that that authority is to be used to grace others. He was using his authority as an apostle in the church at Corinth to grace them, to build them up, to benefit them. It's what he did, and it's how we are to use the authority that God has given us. Uh, we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers have Bibles. Uh, they'll bring them along. Raise your hand if you want one. Uh, feel free to keep it if you don't have one. Now remember, as we, as we think about 2 Corinthians, there were three main groups of people in the, in the Corinthian church. And I have no doubt the same three groups are in every church. Uh, first of all, the first group was this faithful majority. These were the people that had responded to Paul's teaching. They had repented. We might call them the repentant group, but they were, they were faithful. The second group was what we might call the rebellious minority. Uh, this was a small group within the church that were stuck in their sin. They refused to respond to Paul. They were unrepentant. They were false teachers. In chapter 11, Paul's going to call them super apostles, very sarcastically. Uh, they were the troublemakers in the church. And then the third group were those in the middle. They were the fence sitters, the undecided. Should we listen to Paul or should we listen to this, false, this group of false teachers? Which way should we go? 
And Paul is trying to get the the fence sitters to get off the fence and join the faithful majority, of course. Chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians begins the final main section of the book. Chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 will be the final section of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is explaining to them that he's planning to visit them for the third time, the final time, and he's warning those in rebellion this, this second group, this rebellious minority, he's warning them that if they don't repent, he is going to bring God's judgment to bear on them. He has the authority to do so as an apostle. And he's also trying to woo the fence sitters off the fence into the, into the camp of the faithful. So in his letter, Paul says, I'm being bold in my letter to ask you to do this so that I don't have to be bold when I arrive. Now, what he's doing is responding to his critics. His critics have said that because, Paul, because you suffer so much, because you go through so much hardship, you must not be a real apostle. You must not be filled with the Spirit. But Paul's saying, oh, yes, I am. And oh, yes, I do have that authority. I can be, I am, I have the authority to be the spiritual leader of this church. And so as Paul defends his authority, we learn a lot about leadership and authority in our own lives. And so what I want us to see this morning is three qualities of godly leadership and godly authority. This is where we're going to go. First of all, godly leaders understand their authority. Godly leaders use their authority for building up and causing others to flourish. Not a common understanding of authority. Verse 8, we're going to perch on verse 8 for a bit here in a few minutes. And then thirdly, godly leaders will fight for the truth of the gospel. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't have any authority. I'm not in a position of authority. But, but really, everybody has at least some authority. Everybody is in leadership at some level. Uh, everyone. We taught our kids when they were young, we taught our kids to be leaders. I remember sharing, they were pretty young, I remember sharing with a friend of ours that we're teaching our kids to be leaders. And his response was, oh, I'm not going to teach my kids to be leaders. I want them to be followers. Like, what? I heard a little groan. I hope that makes you groan. No, we are all to be leaders because we're influencing other people to come along and follow Christ. Moms, dads, you, you, have, you have authority and leadership over your family and your homes and your kids. Husbands, you have the leadership and the authority in your home over your wife and over your children. I don't know, if you're a student counsel in, in school, you have some level of authority. Employers or managers at work, you have some level of authority. If you lead a small group, a, a community group or a small group in the impact ministry or in the rock or, or wherever, or lead a Bible study, you have some level of authority over those people in that group. Elders and pastors of the church have some level of authority over the church. And I was thinking about this week, I suppose older brothers and sisters have some level of authority over their younger brothers and sisters. Now, if you're a kid in here and you're one of the older ones and you're going, oh, yeah, yes, I can go home and tell him or her what to do. Understand what the authority is for. The authority is for building others up and causing them to flourish. So older brothers and sisters, you might have authority, but you use your authority to help your younger siblings flourish and grow. It's not a place of, of ruling, it's a place of serving, as, as we see that today. 
So let's look at the first quality of, uh, of godly leadership, godly authority, and that is that godly leaders understand they have their authority. They understand that they have authority, and they know what it means to have this uh, and use this authority. Um, I want to read verses, uh, let's start in verse 1. Um, I'll put the text up there. Let me read through it. Um, Starts out in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now there's a shift here in the tone in the book. Paul is saying, I myself, he's being very personal. He says, I entreat you, I beg you, I implore you by the meekness and gentleness. And this is what his, his critics accused him of. They accused him of being weak and meek and gentle. And, and, and really, it's just his slowness, his forbearance, his patience with them. He could come down hard on pronouncing judgment, as we'll see, but he's exercising his authority with meekness and with gentleness. And then the next phrase, I who, this is pure sanctified sarcasm. All right, just get this here. He says, I who am weak or humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. This is what the unrepentant, rebellious minority said about him. They said, oh, Paul, you're so strong in your letters. You write such a good letter and you pull out all the stops. But when you show up, you're just a wimp. You're just so weak. You're, we're not worried about you coming because you can't do anything when you come because you're so weak. And so when he says this, I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, quote, stop, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, he's reciting what they're saying about him. Verse two, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. See, there he's saying, I'm going to be bold when I come. Who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. They say Paul's not living by the Holy Spirit. This is this rebellious minority. He doesn't live by the Holy Spirit. He lives according to the world's standards. He lives according to the flesh. Don't worry about him. Jump down to verse 6. We will be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, when all of those who are sitting on the fence finally decide which way to go, and, and they have completely obeyed, and, and, and many of them have chosen to follow me, Paul, then we're going to punish the disobedient. We're going to punish those, those false apostles, those deceitful workers. Again, in chapter 11, he's going to call these, these false apostles, these super apostles, call them what they are. Verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. In other words, Open your eyes. This should be obvious. This should be clear. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. You, you question my authority? Seriously? You question my relationship with Christ? I brought the gospel to you guys. And now you're questioning me? Verse 8, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority... Paul does have spiritual authority. He hates the fact that he has to defend it. But he will in the following chapters because he knows the purpose of authority. If I boast too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, 
I will not be ashamed. Verse 8 is so important. We can think of it in terms of our own authority, the authority that God has given us. The Lord gave it for building others up, not for tearing them down. Verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, and here's what the unrepentant group are saying about him again, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. This is just dripping with sarcasm. Paul's saying, oh, you have no idea. Verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we will do when present. You think I write a strong letter, but I'm a wimp when I'm with you? Hang on, because I'm coming, and it's not going to be pretty. Paul's authority was completely spirit-filled, completely spirit-led. Paul's authority was a grace that he received from God, and he passed it on to others. He exercised his authority for the building up of the church. Sometimes that meant he used, he, he used his authority to remove rebellious false teachers. But for the most part, his authority was there to encourage and build up the body and cause them to flourish. So those of us that are leaders, and I, as I said earlier, I would say that includes all of us. Those of us that have a level of authority. Understand that the authority that you have been given, whatever that role is, as a small group leader, or as a Bible study leader, or as the head of your home, or as a parent in your home, or as an older brother or sister, that authority is a received grace that needs to be stewarded, just like our money, just like generosity that we've talked about the last four weeks, that that authority is a grace that needs to be stewarded and then used to grace others. And that leads us to the second quality of godly leadership and godly authority. Godly leaders use their authority for building up and causing others to flourish. Look back at verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul loves this church. He loves these people. He only wants their best. He's not out to destroy them. He's not out to be controlling or make life difficult for them. Even in his confrontation, even in his bold words and his not-so-idle threats, he's doing it because he loves them so much and he will do everything he can to keep them in the truth, keep them walking toward Jesus. He uses his authority to bless them, not to destroy them. He uses his authority to build them up, to encourage them so that they follow the truth and they don't get off track and follow these false teachers. It reminds me of Joseph back in Genesis 39. Remember the story of Joseph. Those of you that remember the story of Joseph. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was taken to Egypt. He became a house servant in the house of of a high official named Potiphar. 
Even as a slave, he proved himself, and Potiphar gave him authority over his house and his possessions over everything he had. Joseph was given this grace of authority in Potiphar's house. And look what he did with it in Genesis 39. From the time that Potiphar made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. For Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food he ate. Joseph took the authority that Potiphar gave him and he used it in such a way that those under his authority were blessed. Potiphar's household was blessed. When we exercise our authority in this kind of a godly biblical way, those under us are blessed, they're built up in their faith, and they flourish. But we tend to look at authority as a way to rule over someone, as a way to control them. Authority is often seen as self-serving and it, it squashes those under the person with the authority in order to advance their own agenda. So many abuses of this. So many fathers and husbands have abused their authority in the home. They think their wives and their kids are their royal court to wait on their every need. So wrong. Many church leaders have abused their churches, insisting they give more money so the leaders can buy bigger houses and more Learjets and bigger cars. And that's so wrong, too. We could talk about the authority that government has, but we probably shouldn't. Because it's been abused so badly. And so the idea of authority pretty much has a bad rap. But Paul's authority, biblical authority, our authority that we've given us, that, that God has given us, is to serve others and build them up. I was thinking about this week. I have, I have several roles of authority. And even this morning as I was reading through my notes one more time, I thought, oh, I, I, I forgot some roles of authority that I have, and I probably have more. But I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. Fairly recently. Um... I'm a pastor on staff here at Cornerstone. I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. I'm a counselor. I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm preaching right now. Each of those roles carries a certain amount of authority over my wife, my kids, my grandkids, my home, over this church, over you in this church, over other leaders in this church, and so on, and it goes on. Now, I don't need to be ashamed of that leadership role, of that authority. In fact, like Paul, I can boast that this is a position and a role that has been graced to me, that God has given to me, that has been passed on. Others in authority over me have graced me with the, their authority that builds me up. And so then I can grace others and build them up. And that leads, remember Paul's, remember Paul. Wow, I confused Todd and Paul. That's terrifying. Um, <clears throat> remember Todd's diagram last week? Remember how complicated it was? Um, 
But in that, whenever we are graced with something, we give thanks to God and we praise God. So as authority is grace to me, I thank God. And then as I grace, and then as I use the authority to, to grace others, you thank God. And then you take that blessing and that building up and you pass it on to those under your authority and they thank God and they praise God. And it just keeps going and this dance of grace continues on and on and on. Now, if you want the absolute antithesis of this kind of biblical godly authority, just think of Archie Bunker. How many don't know who I'm talking about? A few of you don't know who Archie Bunker is. Go home and Netflix a few episodes of All in the Family and then do the opposite of what you see him doing. Was this a 70s or 80s show? 70s? Archie Bunker was an absolute pig as a husband and father. He ruled his kingdom like a tyrant. That's not the kind of authority we're talking about. It's not the kind of authority that God is talking about, that Paul's talking about, that, that I'm talking about. But using this authority now might include confrontation if necessary. And that leads to our third quality of godly authority. Godly leaders will fight for the truth of the gospel. One of the roles of leadership, one of the roles of, of God giving leaders authority is to protect others from error and from heresy and false gospels that might creep in. That's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. And that means we have to do battle. We have to fight that off. But even that aspect of doing battle, of confronting people, of, of coming down hard like Paul was threatening to do, even that is to build people up, to cause them to flourish, to protect them from error and heresy so they don't get drugged down this path where they end up rejecting Jesus, which has eternal, very, very negative consequences. In my role as a father, if my wife and kids accepted a different gospel, if they embraced a cult and I did nothing about it, I'm not causing them to flourish. If I said, oh, well, you know, the, you know just I don't want to step in. I don't want to over, overstep my boundaries. If, they, if that's what they want to do, then I just want to let them do that. Oh, I hear parents say things like, we don't, we don't discipline our kids or tell them what to believe. We just want them to find their own way. And they're three brainwash them in scripture. And I don't mean that in the negative sense of the word. Teach them the truth. Use your authority as the head of your home to teach these kids the truth about God. Yeah, the day may come where they go a different direction, but do everything in your power. Go to battle for the truth in their lives. And sometimes when I, as a, an authority figure, go to battle for truth, I suffer wounds. I take the hits. That's part of it. Verses 3 through 5 in chapter 10 that we skipped over earlier are full of warfare language and terminology. Paul's making it abundantly clear that there is a war going on for the truth of the gospel in the Corinthian church. And I would add, there's a war going on for the truth of the gospel in Cornerstone Church. And in every church, and in every home represented here, 
And in every small group and in every ministry group, there is a battle for truth that's being waged. Satan is relentless. He does not get tired. I was just reading this week about uh, the theology of Satan. And, and one of the things they said is Satan doesn't get weary. Angels and demons don't get weary. They keep on fighting, which means we have got to be relentless in our defense and our offense in fighting back. Look at verses three through five. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we live, we live in this body. Yes, of course, we're humans. We're not waging war according to the flesh. We don't use our fists or we don't use tanks or bombs or guns. That's not how we fight this battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That word stronghold is a military technical term for a fortified place, some place that's entrenched and very, very strong. And that's what, that's what these false doctrines and these false teachings are. They're, they're strongholds. So Paul says, use your spiritual weapons to, to destroy these strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The battle that we are fighting is a spiritual battle. Paul makes that clear over in Ephesians 6 where he talks about uh, the, the spiritual battle that we're in. We're fighting unseen forces that are seeking to destroy us, seeking to bring in error, getting us, trying to get us to believe a different gospel. We can't fight with bullets and bombs. We've got to use these spiritual weapons to destroy these strongholds. And I would say the primary weapon in our arsenal is the truth of the gospel proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. To fight against any false gospel. Ephesians 6 says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is our weapon to go after. We pray like crazy. This group of unrepentant, rebellious troublemakers was trying to lead the church astray. And Paul was using his authority to protect the true flock, just like a father would use his authority to protect his family. Just like you would protect your group of people that you lead, whatever that is. Whatever doctrinal error creeps in. This battle is fought in prayer. It's fought in the counseling room. It's fought in Bible study. It's fought in teaching. It's fought with the truth of the word of God. It's hard work. It's battle. There'll be some casualties. There'll be some wounds. But we fight. Paul gives us three ways here in this text that we fight this fight. First of all, we destroy arguments and lofty opinions in verse 5. This refers to false reasoning. It refers to that humanistic, logical, rational thinking that, that denies God, that denies the power and existence of Christ. It's the arrogant attitude that says God didn't create the earth. It's, you know, it's 14 billion years old and it's, this, isn't, this isn't his creation. Jesus isn't real. I can't see him. I can't touch him. These arguments have the potential to lead people astray, to stop the dance of grace, to tear down rather than build up. We destroy these, these arguments and lofty opinions by continually recounting the truth of the gospel by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second way that we fight this battle is we take every thought captive. In battle, whenever a stronghold is stormed and conquered, there's... Prisoners of war. 
These false teachings, these logical arguments are taken as POWs. One commentator said this about these false arguments. They are put into chains, dragged away, and executed. Oh, I like that terminology. We take these false ideas, these ideas that are against God, that are not true, and we we put them in chains, we drag them away, and we kill them. Now, how do we do that? How do you do that with a thought, with an argument, with a philosophy? We do it by getting a clear vision of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross and what he did in the empty tomb so that my life might reflect his life in word and deed and suffering and so on. We preach the gospel to ourselves. I've heard that phrase a lot. We preach the gospel to ourselves. I've never quite understood it, but I was thinking about it a lot this week. And last night I was laying in bed, not asleep yet. And I was just thinking about preaching the gospel to ourselves and I was to, to myself. And I was actually getting, you know, I get, I get nervous about three days before I preach. Uh, it's pretty bad. Um, and I was laying there thinking about preaching today and I was getting, I was, I was nervous and I was anxious. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to preach the gospel to myself. And I just thought, Jesus, you died in the cross. You rose from the dead. You conquered the grave. You chose me before the foundation of the earth to be a recipient of that salvation. You, you have accepted me. You delight over me with singing. If I go out there tomorrow and I preach and I totally bomb and everybody hates me, you'll still love me. And I just, I just recounted truth in my mind. I slept great last night, by the way. Uh, I usually do. Even when I'm nervous, I can sleep great. But I think, I think that's preaching the gospel to yourself. And all of us have different issues and different battles and different false thoughts and different false philosophies that invade our minds. And so whatever, whatever that false, erroneous thing is, find scriptural truth and preach against it. And that drives out those thoughts. That drives out those those. those negative philosophies, and you take them captive. You drag them away and you execute them. Some might be like, some people question grace. We've talked a lot about grace the last several weeks. Oh, Jesus could never, I can't accept free grace. I don't get that. Or, Or forgiveness. Jesus could never forgive me. You have no idea what I've done. He could never forgive that. We get ourselves back into scripture and say, he can forgive anything. He can forgive anything. His grace is free and it's abundant. Third way we fight this battle for truth is we're ready to punish disobedience. Paul wants to give the fence sitters every chance to get off the fence and embrace the truth, to completely surrender to the gospel. Their obedience, he says, must be complete. Verse 6, then he will punish the disobedient, the unrepentant, the rebellious group, so that the rest of the church is not led astray. He needs to keep the purity of the church intact. Man, we need to be constantly on high alert for anything that is against the truth of Scripture and the pure gospel. And when we see it, we confront it, we root it out, we get it out of our homes, we get it out of our churches, we get it out of our Bible study groups, we get it out of whatever part of of, of life we have authority over. 
our kids are grown now. They're married. They're out of the home. So my role as an authority in our family looks different. But when they were younger, still at home, my desire along with Dawn's is that our kids would flourish in life, that they would flourish in their walk with Jesus, that they would be built up and encouraged. We weren't quite so concerned with, you know, getting their college education or, or getting a scholarship or making a lot of money. That, was, that wasn't important. What was important was that they loved Jesus and they followed him well. And so one of the ways I used my spiritual authority was, was, was to have a zero tolerance. I had a zero tolerance for anything that was demonic or occultic or anything that could give Satan a foothold into our home. Because I believe in the spirit realm. I believe it's real and I believe it's dangerous. So I didn't want anything in our house that would, that would remotely give Satan a foothold. We had no Ouija boards. I even had a hard time with Halloween. We won't get on that soapbox right now. Wait till October. Um, I just really, really tried to use my authority as the head of the home to make sure our home was safe. So one year at Christmas, my parents sent the kids these little stuffed things. Um, they were weird. I don't know what they were. This is uh, mid-90s, so Furbies or Furbies, is that what they were? Were those things weird? Thank you. Um, my parents lived a long ways away, so they weren't close by, but they mailed them to the kids. And I opened the box, and I got them. And they just looked evil. <laughs> they, they, they just looked wrong. And I had no idea if they were or what they were. But uh, Dawn and I talked, and we just threw them in the garbage can and sent them out. And my parents never knew, and my kids never knew. Uh, they were not, they didn't suffer a bit because they didn't have them. But see, there's an, I just, zero tolerance. Maybe I crossed the line a little bit too far that way. Were, were, were Furbies evil? Were they bad? I don't even know. I get, yes. I, okay, so I was, I was in good company. Huh? They wake up in the middle of the night. That's weird. Um, so I was right on. Yes, sir. Now, I also used my authority as a parent to have a zero-tolerance policy for disobedience in our home. I knew that someday my son would be a lot bigger than his mother, and he is. He's 6'3 and about 280 or something like that. And so as a little boy, I made sure that he did not disrespect his mother in any sense of the word. Zero-tolerance. And he loves, he loves her dearly today. And we punished every act of disobedience. Kind of like the third point there. We punished every act of disobedience. Why? Because I wanted to be a controlling Archie Bunker kind of dad? No, because I love those stinking kids so much. It would have been a lot easier to just let them get their own way. But we would not let them get their own way because I wanted them to flourish in their walk with Jesus. And we knew that we had to stop them disobeying us and teach them to obey us or they would never learn to obey Jesus. And so I used my authority in the home 
Don and I used our authority as parents in the home to punish disobedience, to stop false, dangerous things coming into our home so our kids would flourish and love Jesus. And today, as young married adults, they do. They love Jesus. It's like every bit of energy we put into that is so worth it. Paul is so adamant here because there's a different false gospel being preached by his opponents. And he loves this church so much that he'll do whatever it takes to protect them. Look at chapter 11 and verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. It's like you guys are not being discerning. There is one way, one truth. Jesus is the only way, and and you're just accepting these other gospels. And he knows that if they accept a different gospel and a different Jesus, they're in a heap of trouble. The name of Jesus is violated. They themselves are drifting into the eternal dangers of unbelief. And this dance of grace is stopped in its tracks. The dance of grace will not be extended to the next generation of people. Paul is ready to exercise his apostolic authority on this rebellious group for the good of the whole church. He is going to remove them from the church so they can do no more damage. The gospel is the only hope for mankind. That's it. Politics won't work. It's pretty obvious. Wars solve nothing. Ranting on Facebook doesn't help. So quit it. Divorce isn't an answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the message of the gospel is in any way watered down, hope is gone. We need to ruthlessly fight for truth and use our authority to fight, for, to fight against error. So how do we carry out this fight? Let me just try to summarize in a big statement here. We demolish arguments and false logic. We take these wrong thoughts and ideas captive by proclaiming the true gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. And we do it by embodying in our own life the suffering of Jesus on behalf of God's people. We do all this in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray without ceasing for those under our care. And if need be, we punish those who refuse to repent. We use the grace of the authority that has been given to us and we fight this fight for the truth of the gospel and we keep the dance of grace going. I said at the beginning of my sermon that there's a lot of different roles and places of authority. Husbands, parents, ministry leaders, pastors, whatever. I want to illustrate with a couple of examples of how this authority is graced to people and then it's used to grace others. First example are the elders here at Cornerstone. We have been graced with a spiritual leadership over this flock of people called Cornerstone Church. 
God has given us this authority to work hard to protect the flock from error and to build you up and to do everything in our Holy Spirit-enabled authority to make sure that everyone flourishes. Our authority is not for tearing down. It's for building up. It's for encouraging. We're working right now on a process where we can shepherd every single person that calls Cornerstone home, home that, that nobody gets lost falls through the cracks so that we can pray for you and encourage you in your walk to make sure you're following hard after Jesus. Got a long ways to go, but we're working on it. We have personnel. We have a new software program. We're doing all these things to make sure everyone is shepherded and cared for. We also want to make sure that we are all believing the true gospel, that no false gospel creeps in. Something else we're working on right now is, is a rewrite of our statement of faith. Now, don't worry, we're not changing what we believe. It's the truth of scripture, but we're updating it and we're working on it to make sure what we say we, really, we believe, we really do believe, and what we really believe, we say we believe, and that it's accurate and it's thorough and it's biblical. Then we can teach it and explain it to people that want to know about Cornerstone. We've been given the grace of authority in order to grace you so that Jesus is exalted and you can grace others and keep the dance of grace going. Another example, some of those whom we grace as, as elders and leaders in the church are those that lead small groups or lead ministries or lead worship or teach or whatever your position of authority is, kids, junior high, senior high, kids ministries, whatever. Understand that what you do in your sphere of ministry you do in order to build up those people under you. And you are to do everything you can to cause them to flourish in their walk with Jesus. You confront error if needed. Over the next few weeks, Todd's going to unpack, take several passes through chapters 10 through 12 and understand how we're to handle conflict and confrontation. We take the grace, you take the grace of authority that, that you have been graced with and grace others with it so that Jesus is honored. Now, what's the motive in all this? We can get all mechanical, we can have principles and systems, blah, 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 blah. But what's the heart behind godly authority? Let me suggest two words, love and jealousy. Love and jealousy. Look at chapter 11, verses 2 through 3. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, Corinth, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is jealous for the Corinthians. This is his fear. This is our fear as pastors and elders at Cornerstone. This is my fear as a dad. This should be your fear in whatever place of authority you are in, that those people under our care will be deceived and led astray from a pure gospel and a passion for Jesus. Paul, did you see that? Paul performed a wedding here. See that? He joined the Corinthian church who was like a daughter to a single husband, Jesus Christ. 
And now he's using his authority to keep that marriage healthy and intact. And these troublemakers, these false teachers, these false gospels were trying to seduce the Corinthians into an adulterous relationship. And Paul said, no, I won't have it. So this should also be our motive. Husbands, fathers, parents, elders, pastors, managers, whatever your place of authority is, we love our families. We love our people so much that we have this holy, passionate, sanctified jealousy that some other boyfriend is going to sneak in and steal them away. Some other gospel will steal them away. And we will do whatever it takes to protect them, build them up, and keep the dance of grace going. Amen? Lord Jesus, I pray that as we think through the roles that you've given us, as we think through how you have graced each of us differently with with positions of authority and influence that we would understand that that's a, a servant role. That's a position where we are to build others up and to encourage them in their walk. Lord, may we do that. May we love these people so much that we just cannot stomach the idea of another gospel Another Jesus, false teaching, false truth, would steal them away. May that be our passion, our motive, our drive, our desire. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.